least, especially in the first service when I've never seen it before. Dave said to me, what do you want before you leave? What kind of music do you want? I want it celebrated, but I want Ben and Andrea to do that song. And so, Ben, thank you for coming home and being here to do that. That's what I wanted in the last day. Every time I do communion, I say thank you is such a short term for such an amazing gift. And so I'm not sure how to be able to adequately say thank you for everything. But the way you've treated us, the way you've loved us, the way you've cared for us, the way you've given for us, and what you've done for us has been amazing. So thank you from the depth of our soul. Thank you for all the gifts last week. I didn't have any idea what any of them were. Every single service was something different and something extremely unique and personal to us. So thank you for the elders doing that, for the gifts that you gave us, for the honor to be able to celebrate with you on that particular Sunday. Last Sunday was a great gift from God and all the things that you gave. Hopefully you'll understand this statement. I cannot respond to every text, any emails, or send thank you notes for the cards that we got when my mom and dad passed away or the cards that we're getting today when we go through the reception. I hope you understand that. So let me just say publicly and to all of you, thank you for everything you've done, everything you've sent, and everything you've said. It has meant the world to us, and we deeply appreciate that. Today we're going to hear from a friend. And I love the fact that I can say that from, again, a personal relationship for the whole 25 years that I've been here. One of those rare individuals who's known everything about me and still likes me. And still has agreed to come and be here today. He has been through every situation and every circumstance that Connie and I have been through. He and I have been that faithful couple all of our lives. Been in this church over 35 years in Vermont, the largest evangelical church in the northeast of this country. And he continues to speak for God in a variety of different ways. He's on the board of directors for the CNMA. We've served together in that, and he still is. He's the chairman of the board of trustees for Nyack College and the seminary. And we have the opportunity to serve together in that context. But today, I had the honor of introducing to you Scott Slocum, one of the best friends I've ever had in ministry, who's going to speak to you today. Am I on here? Yeah, you didn't mention my dashing good looks or my charming personality. <laughs> God bless you, my friend. It is an absolute joy for us to be here. Uh, we have been close through all these years of ministry, so I feel like we know you, um, just simply because we've been praying for you, we have heard about you, we've had uh, different moments and situations that we've uh, encountered together as couples in ministry, so I feel, like, I feel like I know you, and it's so good to be here. I will say, watching the video is unfair. Uh, I said at first service, I didn't know I was going to follow that, and and I'm not even the one retiring, but I'm an emotional wreck after watching that. I, I will say this, Connie, you're as beautiful as ever, and, and you, you've just gotten better, but you need to hear this next statement in the right context. You've gotten much better, um, but you needed to from what I could see in some of those. Uh, <clears throat> you didn't need to, but man, there's some great improvements for, for you, Denny. Um, when I got the phone call, when I got a text from Denny, he said, hey, can you call me real quick? I immediately uh, called because there's a history that we have that you wouldn't necessarily know about, but there's a history of Denny calling me. There's something going on in the church and uh, something he's facing, personal or otherwise, he'll call and say, hey, can you talk me through this? Let's talk about it together. And of course, he's called me when I'm in my office, but when he calls, he's no respecter of time and place. Of course, you don't know when you call someone where they're at, but he has called me, of course, during dinner. He's called me out to dinner. He's called me when I'm in the shower. He's called me on vacation. He's called me on grocery shopping. I was out golfing. He's called me. I've been in a different country. My phone rang, and it was Denny. But one of the moments stand out, we were in Disney World, family vacation. We're in Disney World. We're in Tomorrowland. I can tell you exactly where it was. In Tomorrowland, getting ready to go to Buzz Lightyear's spinning shooting ride. 
We've been looking forward to this. We're all going together, and my phone buzzes. Now, in ministry, it's probably true in everyone's life, but in ministry, you know, now with cell phones, we're just attached to them. I used to love pre-cell phone day. I could leave the office, and no one would know where I was at or get me until I came back, but now it's everywhere. Usually, I turn it off for the sake of the family and whatever, but it, it rang, and so as we're walking in front of Buzz Lightyear, I open it up, I look, and everyone looks at me, you know, ready with that, that eye of disdain, like, put your phone away, and I go, oh, it's Denny. Now, all of my family knows the, knows the crisis. They, they, because of life, my kids have all met Connie and Denny, and my boys specifically, my, my son and son-in-law, love, love Denny. They're gun guys and knife guys and hunters, so they just love him. And so they're all there, and I'm getting this, this, this look of disdain, and I look at it, and I go, oh, it's Denny. And they go, oh, boy, got to take that one. Um, no one balks. And I go to sit down, and they all leave. I figured, great, they're going to Buzz Lightyear without me. But no, they went and got snacks and came back, and they said, I said, what are you doing here? You don't have to be here. Oh, no, we want to we wanna hear what's going on in Denny's life now. Uh, so, so that's a relationship that we have had, and a fun relationship, but also serious. Uh, I remember when you called me um, the day before Easter, and you were in the hospital with some pretty serious heart stuff going on. And I said, I was, oh, I was on my back deck, and I said, well, let's pray. He said, hey, don't forget, don't, yeah, pray for me, don't forget, pray for tomorrow. Uh, the pastor's heart. Pray for church tomorrow. It would be Easter. And of course, uh, we got a call when Connie, you were having surgery. And it was like, hey, pray, pray, pray for us. When family has died, we've heard that we've got the text and we've prayed together. So it was a no-brainer for us. Uh, when he called and said, could you come? We said, yes, not even looking at a date because there are some moments where you just know you're supposed to be there and hear where we're supposed to be. So we're getting ready to, I, I, I go home and tell Diane we're going to up to Butler for the retirement day and whatever. And I said to Diane, we got to give him a gift. we got to give him a gift. And then she says this. She says, well, don't do anything without my approval. <laughs> now, I'm, guys, are you with me? Isn't that offensive? Because you know what she just said, right? She just said, you're an imbecile and you cannot do this on your own. So you have to get my approval. So I went and ordered it without her approval. So I do have to give that disclaimer, this without her approval. But this is from, this is from the heart. Huh? And that's canvas. <laughs> I mean, that's good stuff right there. Don't you be trashing that. I showed my son-in-law, and he goes, the great thing about this is it's, it's expensive and it's nice. He can't throw it away. I know. <laughs> in a lovely place in your dining area, I was, I, last night I saw exactly where it goes. I can come by today and hang it up for you if you want to. Yeah, someone can get rid of that. You don't, need, you don't need two of us looking at you the whole time. So let's get to God's Word here real quickly. Now, as we walk through the sermon this morning, I, I want you to keep three phrases in your mind. Three phrases I want to keep in your mind. We'll put them on the screen. They are this. God's will, God's way, God's time. As we walk through the sermon, I want, you're going to hear me say those, but I also want to get, get that in your head. God's will, God's way, and God's time. Now, I've never preached a sermon where I've been asked to preach a sermon specific to a moment where there's one couple going out, one couple stepping up, and everyone else hanging in. So I thought this is going to be kind of fun to do this. So I want to tell a story. I want to, I want to look at one sentence, one small sentence from David's life, King David's life. But for, in order for me to get to that sentence, I've got to tell you all a bunch of stories to get there. So stick with me to the end because the end comes the main application. But I'm going to give some lessons along the way 
that we can apply as we walk through God's Word together. Now, I, I'm thinking, is this how it can be kind of fun together to walk through this? But make no mistake, we're talking, we're speaking from God's Word, and God's Word will speak profoundly into our lives whenever we let it. So I pray this morning that you'll let God's Spirit speak into your life. A couple of key observations I need to give to you just as we, as we get started. One is, the, one of the key thoughts I'm going to end with was not original to me. I, I heard it years ago and thought, man, that's going to preach. I've got to figure out where and when, and here's the where and when. Now, as we're coming to talk about King David, you need to remember a couple of key things. First thing is this. Remember that God's plan for Israel was never that they would have a human king. It was never God's plan for Israel to have a human king. God wanted them to be different, but they whined and complained because they wanted to be like everyone else. Everyone else had a king. I mean, this came out of Egypt and pharaohs, and they, they'd see the, the king's succession plan, and they, they, didn't want, they didn't want to be different. They wanted to be like everyone else. And so finally, with whining and complaining, God relents and he gives them a king. That's the first thing. They were never meant to have a king. Remember as well that if you look at the life of King David, one of the hallmarks of David's life that was so crystal clear is this. David lived his life in such a way as to clearly say this, listen, I will be a king, but I will never be the king. One of the hallmarks of David's, uh, of David's throne, of David's kingship, was that he lived his life and he led in such a way as to proclaim, listen, I may be your king, I may be the, a king, but I am not the king. The king of kings is the king of Israel. So David is anointed to be king. Now let me ask you a question, or make a statement to you. I think one of the greatest things that reveal who a person is is how they handle authority. Now, by that, I don't mean how they respond to authority. How do they handle it when they have the authority? You know, how they handle things when they're handed the keys to the kingdom. How they handle things when they're the ones in charge. They're the ones that make the decision. When they're the most important ones in the room. How do they respond in those moments? I mean, we, we've all had uh, circumstances in our lives where someone has been elevated to a place of authority and they've handled it poorly. You know, it goes to their head, and you don't like that. Or, and what was really irritating is when someone who gets authority then begins to use that authority to somehow build themselves up or to bring benefit to them at the expense of everyone else. We've been there, we've seen that, we hate that. And the other side of it, we love the stories where the person who has the authority actually sets it aside to do the nice thing and the kind thing. My wife and I love the TV show Undercover Boss. Where the boss, these multi-million dollar people own these ma major companies, they disguise themselves as a regular person and go into the workplace and just work with the people, hear their story. And if you've ever seen it, at the end of the show, they reveal who they are. And of course, these employees are shocked that they've been, they've been talking like they have been talking to the CEO. And the CEO smiles, usually with tears. You can see when, they, when it's been real and they're affected and they want to do something nice with these employees and change their management style because they've submitted themselves to that role of serving the people. We love those kind of stories. And so the question then for us is, so if, how will you be if you're the ones that handed the keys? How would you respond? Would you be the one that would care for everybody else first and your second? Or do you put yourself first at the expense of them? Now here's the beauty of being in church on Sunday morning. Every one of us in our heads goes, oh, I would get it right. That's the beautiful, that's the beautiful thing about being in church right now is you go, I know I, I get it right. But we really don't know that, do we, until it happens. And we really don't know how David will respond until David is put in that place, until he's crowned king. But it took him quite a while until he became king, until he was crowned king. Now the story starts like this, and I've got to tell you some stories to get to that one key piece. So the story starts like this, Saul is king, and, and God has rejected Saul, and, and now it's time for a new king to be anointed. 
And so David is now going to be anointed the king of Israel. When this happens, he's about age 13 or 14 years old. Now he doesn't know that he's being anointed as king. He doesn't know that kingship is part of it. But here comes this moment where Samuel the prophet, I'm sure you know the story, goes and anoints uh, uh, David as king. And the Bible tells us that Samuel's on a secret mission. Here's the text from Samuel 16, uh, verse, 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, well, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. The the Lord said this, take a heifer with you and say these words. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. And you are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said, and when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town all trembled when they met him. They said, oh, do, do you come in peace? You know, don't forget, when the prophet usually came, it wasn't good. So here he shows up, and they're going, is you good news or bad news? He said, man, I'm here in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons, and he invited them to the sacrifice. So the text tells us that Samuel goes, why does he go in secret? Why not just publicly say, hey, we're looking for the new king? Well, it's pretty, it's pretty easy to see why. If you already have a king named Saul, and Saul has a son named Jonathan, who they expect is going to be the next king, if you already have a king, and you're going to announce that you're going to anoint someone else other than those two, you're a dead man. And Samuel got that. So Samuel's on a top secret mission. And so he goes. He goes to Bethlehem, meets Jesse, tells, hey, assemble your sons. Each of the sons comes, and he consecrates each one. But the problem is they all come, and, and the problem begins from the very beginning because Samuel doesn't know who he's supposed to anoint. So the first son comes, his name is Eliab, and he comes, and here's what the text says. So when they arrived, in verse 6, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at, People look at the outer appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And here we have the first lesson of the day, one you've heard before, but the one I have to say because it's one of the greatest lessons to learn, but it's the one we forget most often. And this first lesson is this, that God sees people differently than we see people. See, the text tells us God sees their heart. What do we see? We see their actions. We never see the heart. And let's be honest, specifically what I see when I see their actions, I see their actions towards me. And if they act really nicely towards me, I'm sure they have a good heart. And when they act poorly towards me, uh, they got a bad heart. But I don't really care about the heart. I just care about how they act. And then we move to judgment. So six sons go by and there's no king. Samuel's kind of looking at, looking at this thing. Man, something's not right. So he goes to Jesse and he says, Jesse, is this everybody? And I kind of like this part of the story where Jesse, it's almost like he forgot. He goes, oh, yeah, I do have one more. I mean, how do you forget your son? Now, admittedly, I left my kids in church a couple of times. One thing, I, I, the first time I left them, I went home a summer day, and Diane's cooking lunch, and I was you know, laughing and kind of jokes. Hey, where are the kids? And she said, what do you mean? I said, where are the kids? I said, you were supposed to bring the kids. Oh, that's right. Um, I'm sure they're fine. I got back there. The three of them are caught in the airlock um, sitting there that was fogged over. They wrote, help me. My oldest daughter wrote, help me on the glass. <laughs> so I can get forgetting one, but he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I forgot. I got one more. His name is David. He's out tending sheep, and so Samuel says, well, go get him. We're not going to eat, because it's a dinner. This is a, the part of the sacrifice is dinner. We're not going to eat until he gets here. Uh, and don't forget, this is not like David's down in the basement putting a model together. He's out taking care of the sheep. So they've got to wait a while for David to get there. David comes. Samuel looks at him. God speaks to Samuel and says, this is the one anointed. 
Samuel takes his flask of oil, goes over and anoints David. Now catch this, if you will. No one knows what David is doing and why. I mean, they're just standing there hangry, waiting to eat, and they can't figure out what the holdup is. And then here comes David, and, they go, he, and Samuel goes over and anoints David. Nobody knows what's happening, including David. And then the text tells us this. So everyone's waiting for Samuel to do something. He anoints David. Then it says he gathers his stuff and he leaves. He gets up and leaves. So you can imagine going, what is going on? Now catch this. No one knows what's happened, but the text tells us this. When, when Samuel anointed David, it says that the Spirit of God came powerfully on David's life. Now please catch this next statement. David had no idea what was in store for him. He had no idea that kingship would be his but he did know that moment he belonged to God. Friends, that happens in our lives. There are many times in our lives, I hope frequent times, where you have that sense, man, I belong to God. I don't know what it means. I don't know where he's going to take me. I don't know what the future holds, but I belong to him. Speed ahead. 18 months later, he kills Goliath. He becomes a national hero. He marries the king's daughter. The people love him. Saul loves him. Everything goes well for about seven years. Saul turns jealous, wants to kill him, and now he's a fugitive. He's a fugitive for eight years. So we got 15 years. 15 years before, between the time he's anointed as king as a child and before he becomes actually anointed as the king. Why 15 years? We're not exactly sure why it would be exactly 15, but I can tell you this, because he needed those 15 years to figure out what the words meant, God's will, God's way, God's time. Denny and I started ministry very early in our lives, and when we start, we had no idea what that means. That might be something we'd see him in. That's a great preaching point, but the truth of it is, friends, you've got to live and walk with Jesus for a while before you understand God's will, God's way, and God's time. But I would also suggest to you that one of the greatest lessons that David had to learn is one of the greatest lessons that we need to learn, and we see that he has learned it as we look at his life, and that is this. When you belong to God, it's no longer about you, it's about him. It took him 15 years to fully get that when you belong to God, when I belong to him, it's no longer my agenda, it's his agenda. Now, two quick things about this story for you to know. Sometime in these, eight, in these 15 years, David figures out he's going to be king. We don't exactly sure know when, know when or who told him. 1 Samuel 23, Jonathan says you're going to be king. The next, the next chapter, chapter 24, Saul tells him he's going to be king. His men know he's going to be king. All the people in the land know he's going to be king. And David knows he's going to be king. So sometime in this 15 years, he figures out he is the king. The second thing that's evident in the life of David is this. It is evident to everyone who's around David and who knows David. Everyone knows that when it comes to David, David cares about pleasing God. Everyone around David knew he cared about pleasing God. It wasn't about David's agenda, about God's. Quick question, how about you? Uh, your work coworkers know that that's, what, that's your key thing of life? The people around you, they would say, man, I don't know much about him. I don't know much about her, but I know one thing. They really care about pleasing God. I don't get it. But that's a driving force in their life, and we see this in David's life all along. Now, two quick stories that kind of help build us to this one sentence I told you at the end. So the Bible tells us that David had two opportunities in these eight years of being a, of being a fugitive, two opportunities to kill Saul and to claim the crown. And don't forget, it's the, he's already been anointed to, to be king. He's going to be king. Bible tells us there's two stories. The first one was one of my favorites from a, being a middle school kid, and you'll kind of figure that why in a minute. So here's the first story. 
The first story is in 1 Samuel 24. I, I won't read it for you. We don't have time, so I'll just tell you the story. David and his men are hiding deep in a cave, in a deep cave. So they're back in a dark spot where you can't see them. And right in front of them, Saul and his men, are, they're out hunting for David. And they come by, and Saul stops because he has to go to the bathroom. Bible tells us Saul stops because he has to go to the bathroom. And he's going to go into the cave to go to the bathroom. Now, i just tell you right now, this is not, this is not one of those quick rest stop stops like my, ha- my family has had with me. When they go, Daddy, Daddy, we got to stop, we got to stop. I pull over and say, listen, you got three minutes, get in and get on and get back in the car. So it was not one of those stops. Now, we know that for two reasons. Number one, if it was one of those kind of stops, he wouldn't have to use the cave. Yeah, and uh, that's one reason. The second reason we know that is because David and his men actually have an ongoing conversation while Saul is taking care of business. So, I mean, they're actually they're having a conversation, and it goes like this. So they're in the cave, Saul's in the cave, and, the, and David's men say to him, David! Look what God has done for you. God has provided Saul right in front of you. David, he, God's provided you, your enemy. Your enemy's right here. Instead of him killing you, you can go kill him. He won't even see it coming. You're going to be the king, and if you kill him, everyone will follow you. Go seize the moment. David, you caught him with the pants down. You know, I waited my whole life in ministry to be able to use that in a sermon somehow. <laughs> kill him. So what does David do? You know the story, right? David sneaks up, and instead, he cuts off a piece of the kingly robe. Now, I've said this in the first service, I'll, I'll say this again. I have I, I, sharp knives. You come to my house, every one of my knives are razor sharp. I hate a dull knife. How sharp must his knife have been to walk up? Have you ever tried to cut a, a woven fabric with any kind of sharp thing? How, how sharp must it have been to cut that off without Saul knowing and then sneak back to his men? So he goes back, and they continue the conversation. They're going, David, you're, ki- you're kidding me. you got to be kidding me. Why wouldn't you just go and kill him? Just go get this done. Everyone will follow you. Uh, look what it says in, in verse 5. Afterward, David's was, his conscience was stricken for having cut off a corner of the robe. So not only does he not kill Saul, but now he feels bad because he wrecked the king's robe. So the story tells us that Saul's getting on his donkey ready to leave. David comes out of the cave and says, Saul, here I am. Also says, he fell down on his face and bowed before the king. But then he said this to the king. He said, king, uh, you need to know I, I could have killed you. And you wouldn't even see me coming. And you know how I can prove it? Yeah, here's a piece of your robe. Check your, check your corner. And he looks at him and he said, I could have killed you, but I didn't. And now look at this text in verse 12. May the Lord judge, he's talking to Saul, may the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. Let me translate that for you. It goes like this. David says to Saul, listen, God will judge my heart and God will judge your heart, but I will not judge your heart and I will not harm you. Don't raise your hand to this. Anybody here ever been hurt by someone else? Of course, every hand would go up. Someone said some unkind thing to you? Yep, got it. Someone's attacked you? Uh Uh-huh. Someone has deliberately tried to harm you? Yep. I mean, every hand would go up probably for every single thing I could list. Let me ask you a question. If that's true and someone has harmed you, how does your attitude match up with David's? Where God may judge your heart and God will judge my heart, but I'm not going to judge yours and I'm not going to harm you. It's a pretty good thought to say, well, how do I match up with that one? Now, that's the first story, and Saul goes off. Everyone's telling David, man, seize the moment. Well, you know, it's not God's will, God's way, God's time. Next story comes is this. Saul's out hunting for him again. Not quite as well known a story. Saul's out literally hunting for David with 3,000 men. 
David knows where he's at because the way that you keep from being killed is you send a scout to watch where your enemy's at. So they see him, and they come back and say, David, he's bedding down for the night. And Saul beds down with his men the way that a king would bed down when they're out in battle. And we go like this. The king would take his mat and lay his mat down first. He would take his spear and stick his spear in the ground and take his water jug and put it by the, his, the head of his bed. Just like you have a water cup by your bed at home. There it is. And then that would be his bed. Then what would happen, all of his personal bodyguards would lay their mats down in a circle around him. And then the other 3,000 would make their, put their beds down in another in his circles, keep going out further and further. Why? Because if something happens, an attack, you can't get to the king. I mean, that's the whole purpose of that. So that's what they did. They're now bedding down for the night. David goes to his men and says this, guys, I have a really bad idea. I want to go down into the camp and I want to see how close I can get to Saul while he's sleeping. Anybody, who's in? Nobody's in but one guy. Abishai goes, yeah, sounds like fun. I'll go. Let's do it. So they do it. And if you know the story, they sneak into the camp and they find themselves standing right beside Saul sleeping. And if you read the text, they have another conversation. There they stand and now Abishai is the one talking. He goes, listen, look, look again. Look at what God has done for you. God has provided your enemy right to your hands. Again, instead of him killing you, you can kill him. But I get it, you won't kill him. You don't want to kill God's anointed. I got it. But I'll kill him. It's real simple. I know you can't, but I can. You got a conscience, I don't have a conscience. You see, what happened here, David, is this. I have spiritually rationalized how I can do this and be pleasing God. Just give me the green light and I will pin him right to the ground with a spear. That's the text. I mean, I may add a little, but that's the text. And David goes, nope. I'm not touching him and neither will you. Who am I to deal with this issue? It's God's, God's deal. In fact, he says, he didn't say these words, but you see it in there. He goes, you know what? No, I'm not touching this because, you know, it's going to be God's will, God's way, God's time, not mine. I will not harm him and neither will you. So now we pause real quick for some quick lessons that you need to get. Lesson number one, if you ever find yourself in a moment where you have this perfect opportunity to do harm to your enemy, your adversary, the person that has attacked you, and it's such a perfect opportunity that you're sure that God has set up this moment, you could not be more wrong. God will never set your enemies up for you to harm them. He may set them up for you to demonstrate grace to them and forgiveness, but never for harm. Lesson number one. Lesson number two, having your friends or allowing your friends to do your dirty work for you still leaves the sin squarely on your shoulders. We've done that, right? We tell a good friend who we know, they'll really get cranked up. They'll do something about this. And we kind of let it out to them. So they will run, run and run at it and deal with things. And the sin is still on your, on your shoulders. Third lesson is this. When you're tired, when you're hurt, and when you're angry, and you feel like you've got to do something, be very, very careful who you listen to. See, David's angry, he's a fugitive, he, should, he shouldn't be on the run, but Saul has done this thing, he's got a lot of pent-up energy, he's tired, and he hears voices, and the voices all say to him, what? Kill him. Kill him. Just claim the crown. Friends, be very careful the voices you listen to. I have found that usually the voices that are loudest crying out to me are the ones that are going to get me in trouble. I've also learned that when I listen to my own voice, that's almost a sure thing I'm going to get in trouble. I've learned there are two voices to listen to, God's and my wife, and God is number one. You better listen. Listen to the right voices. And let me give you one last lesson. 
Friends, be very, very careful that you don't use spiritual rationalization for godless behavior. We do that, right? Oh, let me tell you what they did to me so we can pray about it. It's amazing how we can get, bring people in and use God in the picture to rationalize our bad behavior. So David says to Abishai, nope, we're not going to harm him, but let's have some fun. Let's grab his, sword, his spear and let's grab his water jug. So they do. They get their way out of the camp. They're out far enough, I would assume, out of spear range, not a bow and arrow range. And if you read the story, David starts shouting back at the camp. I can just picture this. David silhouetted on some, uh, some ridge with the, bat, the, the dark sky behind him, and he starts screaming, Hey, Abner, wake up! If you don't know who Abner is, Abner has to, happens to be the chief bodyguard of Saul. Abner, you poor excuse for a bodyguard. Wake up. Everyone's awake now. 3,000 of them. Saul, you hear me? I hear you. Hey, where's your spear and where's your water jug? Oh, never mind. I got him right here. I mean, what a great moment. And so he shouted, and now he says again, listen, I need you to know, if I wanted to, I could have killed you, but I didn't. And then he says this, now let my Lord the king listen to his servant's words. If the Lord has incited you against me, then may he accept my offering. But if, however, people have done it, may they be cursed before the Lord. They've driven me away from what should be mine. Here's the translation of that. He says this. Listen, Saul. If I have sinned against God, and God has sent you to take care of me because I've sinned, I will stop. I will confess. I will make it right. He cares about pleasing God. That's what I will do. But then he says this. But if, this is just some jealousy thing of yours. If this is just a bunch of people telling you that you should go and kill me, then I have to tell you, Saul, be very, very careful because God will settle all scores. Here's a simple lesson for you, friends. Whenever you find yourself in a life moment where you're looking at someone who may have hurt or harmed you and you find yourself saying, man, they're going to get theirs, remember that God is absolutely just and he'll make sure you get yours too. One of the things I've worked hard to learn through ministry is when, I, it's like, when I'm thinking they should get theirs, I keep thinking, yeah, and I'm going to get mine. So I better be very, very careful. Saul's heart softens, says, I'm not going to harm you. David melts into the night. And now we come to the most important part of the story. We're coming up to that one little sentence that I want to highlight at the end. Now, there's a lot more of the story, so I have to fill it in quickly. So here goes. Now, Saul and Jonathan are killed. They're now dead. And David mourns the death. I mean, he mourns the death of Saul, the one that was hunting him down. Because he has this heart where he mourns for God's anointed. I mean, Saul was still God's anointed king. So David mourns, and after the mourning is done, upon this death, Judah, you remember the 12 tribes of Israel, Judah immediately pronounces uh, David as their king. Judah says, David's our king, we follow David. So off they go. But the rest of the tribes don't. The rest of the tribes don't follow Judah, in fa uh, follow David. In fact, the rest of the tribes, uh, Saul still had another son, and he becomes their king. And they vote him in, and they anoint him as king, and they say, we're going to follow you. Do you know what David does? Nothing. Nothing. Listen, they just took the throne from him. The throne that God said was his. He did nothing. No war, no battle. In fact, if you read the text, you have this sense where David says, listen, you know, God's got this. I'm going to be the king of Judah. You have your king. Follow your king. The text tells us two years later, his name is Bashtheth. That was the king's son. 
he's murdered. Two brothers come and murder him. And I just, it, just, it just kind of disturbs me when I think about it. They go and kill him, murder him in his sleep. They bring his head back to David with joy. And they go, look what the Lord has done. Look at the Lord has delivered your name. Now, we helped them, of course, in hoping for a reward. And David's response is, look what you've done. You killed an innocent man. Don't forget, he's an innocent king. You killed an innocent man. And so David has them put to death. But now here's the moment. The pathway is now ready for David to be king. Finally, 15 years after being anointed, the stage is now set. Here comes the point of the story where David shows his true greatness, where David demonstrates a spiritual maturity that he could not have had in his younger years. He could not possibly have had it when he began. This is only something that you understand as you get older. And here's the moment in verse 3. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. Friends, I just read for you, and you just saw one of the most moving, one of the most powerful sentences, verses in the Bible. Most of us missed it, as I had, until I was hearing someone else explain it. And I went, oh, in incredible. Now, here's the piece that you probably missed. One of the most inspiring moments. It says in the text that the king, they called him king. He was not anointed yet, but they called him the king. The king made a covenant with the people. Before God. You say, well, Scott, well, why is that important? Listen carefully. You know what a covenant is, right? It's a promise. And I, I know Denny's preached on that. I used one of his illustrations. He preached on it. What's well, a covenant? It's a, it's a promise. It's an oath made before God, but made to the people. Now get this. David was king. They already called him king. They knew he was going to be king. I mean, he was king, and they referenced him that. This anointing was just a formality. And here's the piece you need to get. David had the title. David had the cards. David had the authority. He had the keys to the kingdom. David was the top guy. And on top of that, it says he is making a covenant with the people. He is making a covenant with the very people that were out to kill him. It doesn't say the people made a covenant with David. It says that the king, the guy who had all the power, listen, he doesn't have to make a covenant with them. He doesn't have to promise them anything because he's the king. And yet it says he gives them a promise. I wish I could give you a verse where it says the exact words of what David said. There's not a verse that tells us that. But friends, when I look at the model of David, here's what I think it means. I believe in that covenant, those promises that David made, I believe that David was acknowledging to all the people. In front of all these people, he said, I want you to hear this. I will be a king of Israel, but I will never be the king of Israel. The king of Israel is the king of kings, and I follow and serve him. And remembering that following God is not about me, but it's about him. David was saying to the people this. Before the people, he said this. There's only one king, and it's this king. And I will serve my king by serving his people. That's the only thing I can explain why one who has all the power would stop to make a promise to the people. I will serve the king by serving his people. And Denny and Connie, when I read that, I recognized that that was a description of you. You, long ago, previous to 25 years here, had made a declaration that said, we will serve our king by serving his people. Friends, 
I can't think of anything greater to say about a Christian servant than to say that they have served their king by serving their people. You have the heart of David. I can say nothing better than that, and I say to you, job well done. God's will, God's way, and God's time. But as you read the story, the king is so he's anointed. He's now the king. A new king is crowned. And if you continue to read that no king is crowned, because what happens is that's what happens. Kings crown and kings move from one place to another. Now, usually kings die, and then they pass on the crown. I am so happy I'm not doing your funeral. <laughs> one of the reasons I said yes is because this is far better than doing a funeral. But one of the things that happens is that kings move on. So the king was crowned, and here we are today marking the end of one king to another king. I just use those words loosely. Bob and Grace, you're not new to this. You're not rookies in ministry. You've been here for, what, 19 years. But now, to use that phrase, now you become the anointed king. Keys of the kingdom will be yours. And I will say to you, continue with that storyline. I will serve the king by serving his people. I'm going to ask our district superintendent, uh, uh, Pastor Noggle, to come. He's going to offer a closing prayer. As he does, here's my final word to you. Just six words will radically change your life. Just six words will radically simplify your life. Denny and Connie, just six words will radically change your retirement and make it more simple. To Bob and Grace, just six words will make your ministry so much easier. People, just six words. God's will, God's way, God's time. God bless you. I'd invite up uh, Denny and Connie, uh, Bob and Grace. I'd invite the elders uh, and the uh, staff just to come on up and join us. Denny and Connie, it has been a joy to be able to honor you both uh, for these last several weeks for your ministry, your years of service. I think about uh, what the Lord has done in both of you. Your ministry beginning in Newcastle, moving to Beaverdale, on to Cowdersport, and here in Community Alliance Church in Butler. More than 40 years of service, uh, more than 25 here alone. The Lord has blessed you. The Lord has been pleased with having you both as instruments in his hands by which his grace and his mercy have flowed. Denny, you are a very unique pastor. You're a very unique leader because you lead both with clear direction. There's not confusion in your mind where to go, but you lead with compassion and you lead with vulnerability. It's such unique characteristics in leaders. Uh, and you have done that well. You have drawn many close to you, and there are many that go following the model that you have laid down as you have reflected Jesus Christ. Connie, you have led with passion and desire. Uh, you know, in the mission world, we talk about 
uh, windows of opportunity and receptive people, but you have recognized that receptivity that it's in the heart of children. Uh, if you just, I just did a quick look to see the ages most people ask Christ in their heart, and it falls from that age between 5 and 14. And you have, uh, over your ministry, latched onto that reality, and you've invested into the lives of these. There are many today that love Jesus, that follow in his truth because of the commitment that you have made. It's been a joy to have your church, Butler uh, Community Alliance Church, host our district conference. And when pastors from across the district come, they get to see the things that are meaningful and important to you. I would like to just read two verses for both of you. For Denny, we continually remember you before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And Connie, Jesus said, let the little children come to me. And do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. I'd invite the staff and the elders to come close. And would you just uh, extend your hands from where you're sitting as we pray blessing upon this couple. Lord Jesus, we bow in your presence. We thank you for your word as it was proclaimed today. And Lord, we thank you for this couple. Thank you, Lord, for those that have said yes to Jesus to follow you. And then thank you for Denny and Connie have said, Lord, we'll follow your call that you have put upon our lives. Lord, thank you for their faithfulness. Thank you for their years of ministry. Lord, thank you for the impact that they've had in the places that you have put them and the places that you have allowed them to go. And so, Lord, thank you for the graciousness that rests upon this couple. And Lord, as you lead them in these next steps in their life and their calling of following you, Lord, according to your words, would it ring fresh in their eyes? Do you see that I'm doing something new? So Lord, we pray your blessing upon them in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Bob and Grace, it's a real joy to be here this morning. And Bob, as you enter into this role of senior pastor here at Community Alliance Church, it is a not it's a, not an unfamiliar task because you have both been called by the Lord and you have followed him. And that, that calling has taken you to many, many places. And he has established you here for his purposes. Bob, in the last chapter of... The Gospel of John, Jesus asked Peter the question. He said, Peter, do you love me more than these? And we really don't know what Jesus may have pointed to or what he was looking at when he asked that question. But what we know is that Jesus was asking Peter that pointed question, am I center in your life? Nothing else comes before me, even in this calling on your life. Bob, may that always be your realization as you serve the Lord. That that answer is clearly, yes, Lord, I love you more than anything else. May his blessing be upon you as you lead this church. May his blessing be upon you as you help mobilize this community of believers 
to have a great impact in the community where we live. You know, it's interesting here in Butler, the statistics say almost one in three are below the poverty level. It's amazing to see, even with a large church as this, how many still did not know Jesus Christ. May Community Alliance Church be used by God to reach the underreached and underserved in our community for the renown of his name. I would invite the team and the elders to come and gather around. And I'd also invite you to stretch forth your hands as we pray a blessing of prayer of commitment over Bob and Grace. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the calling that you put on our lives. And that call first is to you. And Lord, just as scripture says, come follow me. That's the first thing that you've said. And Lord, thank you for the response of Bob to that question. And Lord, beyond that, you in your word say that there are those that are set aside for your unique purposes. And so for such a time as this, uh, you've set aside this couple. And so Lord, we pray for Bob as he takes this role as senior pastor at Community Alliance Church. Lord, may he find you adequate in the midst of his inadequacies. May he find you able to do that which he is unable to do. And Lord, may always all glory and honor go to you. Lord, through his ministry, the ministry of his team, ministry of this body of believers, may the kingdom of God be expanded. May the good news of Jesus Christ be declared both here and around the world, for you are worthy. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you all for being here this morning. You know that you have a, a great opportunity before you because Den and Khan are going to make their way to the gym. You'll have the opportunity uh, to go and uh, just say thank you to them. Let, you, let them know that uh, you appreciate them. I'd uh, love to have you talk to them about the impact that you've had in their life. I, I do want you to know as well, uh, just a logistical thing, <laughs> we need you to do that fairly quickly because they need to come back here uh, for the next service. In fact, if you see Denny step out, if you happen to be in line, uh, don't, don't leave. He's going to come back uh, to there so that he can uh, make sure he has an opportunity to speak to, to all of you. So it, it's, a, it's a great joy uh, for me, really. It's a, it's a high honor and privilege uh, to be called your senior pastor. But let's, this morning, just do a great job of sending Den and Con off, letting them know how much we appreciate them how much we love them. You have an opportunity to do that in the gym right now. Thanks so much for being here.